and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I sit down with Eric Schoikat, founder and CEO of Adam Finance. Adam Finance is the fastest growing investment research and portfolio management platform backed by the likes of Graycroft, General Catalyst, and Flatiron's Zach Weinberg. While working on Wall Street, Eric identified the massive information gap between enterprise platforms like CapIQ and what was available to retail investors. Adam Finance was founded in 2018 to close this gap, empowering any investor with the tools typically reserved for Wall Street professionals. In today's episode, Eric and I discuss his founding journey and the ways in which Adam is empowering everyday investors and spend the back half of the episode discussing retail investing as a whole. We of course cover Robinhood and pay for order flow with Eric providing some really good opinions on the current retail craze and behavioral finance as a whole. Let's get started. Hi, Eric, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're very excited to have you on today, and it's always good to have a Penn alum on the show as well. Thanks for having me. So where are you located at the moment, and where have you been since the lockdowns began? Uh, I am currently in Miami, and I've been spending most of my time down here. When did you make the move over to Miami? Uh, Late last year. Before that was between New York and actually Charleston and Savannah. Oh, beautiful. Some of my favorite cities in the U.S. That's awesome. Is the hype real? We had Mayor Suarez on the podcast last month, and he was definitely trying to sell us on studying abroad in Miami. Yeah, I think it's funny. Obviously, a lot of uh, VC stuff tends to get very hyped on Twitter. But I think, look, structurally, I think companies, especially in the tech space, are going to move to kind of a flexible work regime with, I think, several satellite offices. I think that's a model that is super flexible and allows you to, to have critical mass people in office while expanding the types of folks you can hire and kind of letting them live and enjoy themselves where they want to be. And I think ultimately, you know, New York has a solid tech scene, which obviously, you know, we're headquartered in New York. And so we care a lot about, you know, the success and health of the city. But I would say structurally, but, you know, the policies that the city has been pursuing have definitely deteriorated quality of life. And I think proof is in the pudding in terms of migration. And so it's no surprise, I think, that people want to have a higher quality of life and pay significantly less taxes. And if they can work remote, then it's kind of a no-brainer, uh, in my opinion. So I think you're going to see a lot of this end up being structural. And my guess is that the number of tech companies and financial firms that have a meaningful presence in South Florida over the next 10 years is, is going to grow dramatically. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, I lived in New York four to five years before school and always grew up in the shadow of the city. And I just remember thinking someday how brutal the city can be will catch up to it. So jumping to your background, believe you're a fellow Jersey native and then ended up on Wall Street at Blackstone and then as an investor at Governor's Lane. Can you walk us through your background and really how it led you to founding Adam Finance? Yeah, sure. So I uh, grew up in New Jersey. I went to a boarding school down near Princeton called uh, Lawrenceville. And then I was an undergrad at Penn in the Huntsman program. So studied in both the college and Warden. spent some time studying abroad in China when I was at Penn. And then Spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to do post-college. I'd always been super passionate about investing in public markets. I think it's a great privilege to be able to study businesses and to profit if you select high-quality businesses that grow in value over time. And you get the privilege of learning about them and and making money from the hard work of hopefully good management teams. So I I think it's an awesome field. And I think doing a stint of investment banking post-undergrad makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of habits and just uh, kind of normal work 
behavior and the processes that you pick up from that. So I decided to spend some time at, at Blackstone in the restructuring group, which actually is now part of PJT, but at the time was probably one of the highest caliber groups on the street and the alumni list and the types of people it had attracted historically, especially for Penn, was super high quality. So I was excited to work there. I was always super fascinated by restructuring and bankruptcy law. I think there's a lot of interesting aspects of distressed investing that you don't necessarily see in you know normal stock selection, but I, I think are worth learning, even if you don't pursue a career in that field longer term. So did that for a bit and then was given the opportunity to join a fund called Governor's Lane, which was spinning off at the time from Eden Park, led by one of the partners there, and, and had the opportunity to join as the fourth person on the team and kind of see the beginnings of a new fund. So joined before we even actually had received our capital and, and worked on the initial process of picking the initial portfolio. And that was super exciting. It was very much a, a startup vibe, you know, only a few people. You know, we had a successful initial raise, the fund did well for several years and grew from, you know, 500 million or so of assets to about a, a few billion. And over that time, learned a lot, kind of matured a bit in my career. But then as, as the fund, you know, matured and got a little more stable, got the itch to want to do something a little more entrepreneurial again and kind of miss the scrappiness and fun of the early days. So decided to take a break and, and see what I wanted to do next. Have always been passionate, as I mentioned, about public markets and the financial information space. And so kind of kept coming back to potentially starting something in that field and didn't want to do something operationally intensive since I had never actually built or done anything as an investor. So felt that software was a good place to start. So initially really just focused on building product for myself. The general thesis was that the financial information space had a bunch of legacy products, whether that be you know Yahoo Finance, Google Finance, brokerage apps up through the CapEQs and Bloomberg's the world that were relatively ill-suited for kind of a, a modern software consumer behavior. And a lot of those products, especially on the institutional side, are super expensive, really hard to use, not that great for a lot of core use cases. The free platforms were really low quality in terms of user experience, really low quality in terms of data, content, and tools, and felt there was a large white space there between those kind of low quality free platforms and the more expensive offerings, as you kind of have seen with the, how the common consumer subscription software has become, felt that there was a clear value prop here to deliver a better software solutions for people to access financial information and monitor markets in their portfolios. And if we could do it at a reasonable price point, that was relatively market and serve a lot of prosumers and not just, you know, wealth three criminals. So now, you know, zeroing in on Adam Finance itself, I think the problem is pretty clear, but so it's a huge problem to solve if, you know, arming retail investors with stronger information and certainly a lot of competition out there in this space. So can you talk about maybe what the product's most impactful features are for retail investors? Yeah, I think the easiest and kind of initial use case that a lot of folks like is the ability to link a portfolio to the platform. So when you do that, you can link multiple brokerage accounts and your retirement accounts and have those all in one place. We ingest all of your holdings data and we'll show you your consolidated returns versus various benchmarks. We'll show your breakdown across different sectors. We'll show your asset categorization. And we'll show you your real-time P&L across all of your accounts. The other thing we do is we have a feature called look-through. And basically what that shows you is what the actual underlying stocks you own are, even if you own a bunch of mutual funds and ETFs. So I think a lot of people don't realize 
oh, I own QQQ or I own this mutual fund and actually you own a 15% position in Apple. And you may own four mutual funds, but guess what? They're all concentrated in Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft. Right. So I think mean, a lot of folks don't realize that. And so what we actually show people is like, look, these are the stocks you actually own. These are your actual exposures. And this is you know, the weighted average, valuation multiple, revenue growth, those sorts of things in your portfolio. And then we tie that holding data in with the rest of our platform. So i.e. price alerts, news alerts, other document alerts, things like that to keep you engaged and keep you informed of what's going on with those holdings. So I think that's a great use case. To the extent someone wants to go deeper and research those companies or look up other companies, we have a lot of fundamental data and information that is really historically only been accessible in institutional platforms. So everything from valuation multiples several years out to historical financial data to live company comparison data, which includes both things like returns and multiples and growth rates and financial history, et cetera. And, you know, in addition to that, we also have a lot of documents and content. So very high quality news. So generally, if a stock is moving or sector is moving, we'll have something related to why. And in terms of documents, we have filings, transcripts, and actually company presentations as well. So to the extent you want to dive deeper, read the company's investor presentation, you know, read the latest earnings transcript, understand what's going on, search through those things. We make that all easy and accessible to do. And then, so just one quick follow-up, where do you get all of this data from? Who are you using as your data vendor? Yeah, so that's been a, you know, a lot of the challenge of building this product and it's a real challenge in the space. So unlike other spaces where there's a couple APIs that you can just use and build on top of, like the financial information space is, is light years away from that. You know, a lot of data providers still send stuff via text or FTP. Even if they do have APIs, generally the support and documentation is very, very poor. So we've had to assemble this kind of data infrastructure. We have over a dozen data providers that we've assembled in the last two years. I mean, certain providers have specific content sets, others we mash together. And so this is the whole ingestion infrastructure we've created. But we partner with a bunch of major institutional providers that folks would be familiar with who have you know, institutional platforms. And we also do a lot of ingestion scraping ourselves. So things like, for example, company presentations. There's nobody can go to get company presentations as an accessible data set. So we have 20,000 company presentations going back five years plus, and we've kind of scraped all that and done that ourselves. So it's a combination of having great data partnerships and relationships and having built the right ingestion infrastructure and then doing a bunch of more scraping and hacky things ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it brings me to kind of my next question about product design and features since all this Mm -hmm. data, you know, has to go into great use. So especially since you didn't have an engineering or product background, every retail investor is quite unique, right? You'll have technical (laughs) traders, momentum traders, people that have never seen the stock market before, fundamental investors, et cetera. So you have a lot of people to cater to. How did you think about deciding how to first build the product? Were these customer calls or just kind of going off previous knowledge? Yeah, it's a great question. So as I mentioned before, I was really building for myself. And so I was really focused on the somewhat more sophisticated retail investor called the prosumer who generally had you know, 50 to 100K plus in their brokerage account and was looking for a more robust user experience and information experience. So our target audience is really the fundamental. There's a few um, archetypes, but really it's the fundamental investor and we'll call the somewhat affluent or aspiring to the affluent market monitor. Those are like two great archetypes. And so one is the first one might be someone who's much more active, really diving into the financial details and the nitty gritty. The second one is someone who maybe just wants to link their accounts, see their performance, get basic news and monitor the market. So those are great, two great use cases. And the third would be folks who are still learning 
but have the aspiration to get more sophisticated. And so we have a bunch of tool tips and educational things in our platform to kind of explain what valuation multiples are. And there's actually, you know, there's a lot more work we can do on that front, but we do care about folks who are new to the market and are looking to better themselves instead of kind of just gambling on options trading. And I would say the last pillar, which you mentioned, which is technical traders is not really a focus of ours. You know, fundamentally, I don't believe in technical analysis or trading. I don't, I think there's some data to support price entry and things like that. And if you work at a quant hedge fund, there's a lot of interesting momentum models and things you can trade off of. But from our perspective, that actually is an overserved market. There's a lot of various charting services. And there's actually a few good companies in that space that have done a good job in that area. And it's not a space that we know particularly well and are as focused on. So we're really focused on like, fundamental investors or folks who are actually looking to compound their wealth over time and are not kind of trading on a technical or other basis. Right. So then how do these people really engage with the product? You have a freemium model that I saw on the website. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about how you designed the free and premium and what is available in each? Yeah, it's a great question. So folks can go on our website, adam.finance slash plans, and they can see the exact feature list. There's, there's a bunch of things there. But essentially, the product started as a free product. And the reason we did that was, you know, our view was we were building a great solution, but building a great solution takes time. And so when we launched the initial MVP, we didn't think it was suitable to be charging for it because we didn't think we were there and we had crossed the you know, Rubicon of where it made sense to charge and to extract value from our customers at that moment. So continued to iterate and build on top of the initial MVP and worked up to the point where we felt that it, it made sense to start you know, monetizing and taking that capital and reinvesting it back into the product. So we did that and launched the premium offering in October of last year. And basically just parsed the platform between what we'll say is kind of core functionality that we felt should be more widely accessible versus things that we felt were a bit more premium and sophisticated and would appeal to a good percentage of our users. But it would really appeal to those folks who are much more engaged and active and probably had a, a bit more stomach to pay. So that's how we decided what features to use. But core functionality, things like the portfolio linking and analysis, basic valuation multiples, company information, basic news, those sorts of things are all in the free product. And to the extent you want you know, premium news, documents, more detailed fundamental data, textual search, the ability to add, you know, mock portfolios, those sorts of things. Those are all kind of part of the premium product set. And then I do want to pivot. I mean, we can't talk about investing in retail investors without mentioning the trends of the last few months. So I think it's a great thing at first, because in this type of market, everyone is doing very well and building wealth and, you know, are very engaged, but the other foot will eventually drop. And I mean, even today, the market took a quick bath (laughs) this morning, some stocks down 10% and the NASDAQ down almost four or 5%, but it is recovering. How are you thinking about this retail investor psychology? How it will play Mm -hmm. out over the coming years and really its implications for your users? Because you you are very focused on education and empowering the retail investor. So how do you kind of strike that balance over the coming years? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting kind of on this theme. So I'll say first and foremost, there's this notion in tech, especially venture-backed companies that, quote-unquote, democratizing access to things, extending access is, is unequivocally a good thing. And I would say generally that's true. I would say in financial products, that's almost certainly not true. And I can give you a really easy example, which is if I woke up tomorrow and was like, hey, I'm building an app to democratize access to credit default swap trading. I don't think anyone would be like, oh, retail investors should be trading CDS from a mobile app. Right. And you laugh, but like that could totally happen and it would just be gambling, right? And so there are platforms getting built that basically enable that to some extent. And there's reasons structurally 
why retail investors don't have access to default swaps, right? It's because there's no use case for them. So I think it leads to some questions about why are retail investors, if you, there's this great chart, you can look at, I think Zero Edge had this, but which basically shows the amount of small option contract trades and the amount of premium spent on options by retail investors. And it's vertical. I mean, it's a clear bubble. So I think there's great questions to be had of why are retail investors trading in weekly options other than gambling, right? There's no use case. If you look at hedge funds, go talk to people at hedge funds. No one in a hedge fund trades weekly options. And the reason is that companies don't really move in extreme amounts in a week in a noble way, unless they're a, call it biotech company where there's a known FDA decision coming out or something like that. So you don't buy or sell, you know, you don't buy calls or puts on, on, uh, stocks usually with that expire in a week because there's really no fundamental reason they should move in, in that way. And there's no use case. So I mean, when you take a step back, there's a lot of investing access expansion that's happened without accompanying information tools and content to make investors informed and to give them the ability to kind of invest and actually compound and build wealth over time instead of enabling just trading, active trading and essentially gambling, which you know, I don't need to tell people who probably listen to this podcast. There's so many studies on this that show that that like is super disruptive and doesn't create wealth over time. So what we're focused on is saying, that's great that you can trade commission free. Like that's cool. And we can chat about pin forward or flow in a second, but the expansion of access is great, but without accompanying information tools and data that can let people monitor markets and stay informed and make reasonable investment decisions, it's actually not a great societal thing necessarily. So that's the setup. I think there's some interesting threads on like the business model of brokers and payment for order flow, which we kind of view as not being probably a good fiduciary as a broker. And I think there'll be some interesting questions on where the business model of brokers may need to evolve over time to the extent that payment for order flow is curtailed or, or viewed as a less appropriate monetization tactic. But ultimately, we like that more people are investing. I think that's great. I think people should take the view of picking great companies and trying to build wealth over time instead of kind of active trading and gambling. And I think it'll be interesting to see, I'm not trying to make a market prognostication, but I think when you look at the volume of SPAC issuances and the amount of call option premium that's changing hands, I think it's pretty evident in combination maybe with the number of public companies who don't generate a profit. It's pretty clear that there's parts of the market that are very bubbly. And so we'll see when people realize that stocks actually can go down. Uh, not just up. We'll see what happens. But I think the good thing about that is markets are very humbling. I've had a lot of bad investments over my institutional investing career and, and learned many lessons. And that's the beauty of markets. There's a cost of being wrong and they teach you lessons. And I think a lot of these folks who are in the market may or may not learn that lesson and want to actually become a little more sophisticated and just, I think, more of a long-term fundamental investor. And that's a great thing to the extent that they make that kind of migration. I think that's a natural process that will happen. Yeah, a lot of great points there. And the learning, as the nice way to put it, is going to be pretty severe when this correction comes. So you did mention pay-for-order flow, which went from a relatively unknown term to now front page of the journal. Personally, yes, it has its issues, but I think it can be a good thing because I remember the days of buying a stock with a $10 commission on my Fidelity account, and it just really kind of pricing me out of the market as a college and high school student. So really helping little investors save on commission, and these executors will still, of course, need to have best execution, so you get good pricing. But there are weird incentives that would make anyone nervous when you think about it. So can you summarize you know, for our listeners what pay-for-order flow is, and is it as evil or as positive as they say? 
Yeah, so there's a few good threads there. I think the, the thing that people need to understand is that ultimately what's happening with payment for order flows, you have a broker who instead of routing trades to an exchange is routing it to a market maker who's paying for that flow and then executing it, right? So fundamentally, you have someone who's paying for the right to execute your trades, which is there's some weird incentives there. And basically, the reason they do this is because they're able to use that information flow, use the order flow to make money. And so they have algorithmic trading and other things that allow them to essentially monetize the flow and the volume and the trends that they're seeing from that order flow. And so it's, it's interesting because if you talk to like a hedge fund, for example, hedge funds don't sell their order flow, right? And you would say, well, why? And the reason is because (laughs) there's value of people knowing what that order flow is, right? And so you you wouldn't give that up. So hedge funds route to primes or or directly the exchange or dark pools where people can't see that order flow. So the notion that like order flow is like somehow good or like is not worse than directly routing to the exchanges makes really no sense. And there's some arguments that, oh, maybe enhances liquidity, but we're talking about retail investors who are trading 100 shares of Apple. You can execute that in a millisecond. So it doesn't fundamentally make sense. So ultimately, what's really happening to some extent is these funds are buying this order flow and to some extent front-running these trades or making money off of it. And I just think fundamentally, that's like not a good alignment between a broker who presumably is supposed to have the best interest of the customer in mind. And it's the classic saying in tech where if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Are the product. And yeah. that clearly applies here. So... I think that's the setup. I think what's going to happen is that people didn't really understand this. And Thomas Stafferty, who runs Interactive Brokers, used to complain a lot that people didn't understand what payment forward flows. So I think he got his wish that now people, this has kind of been highlighted. And I think people view it as being distasteful. And I think they're correct. So my guess is there'll be a reduced reliance on this method of monetization, probably, because I think it's just going to become less certain and more from a regulatory risk perspective, more at risk. And I think that's the landscape. I think the other thing which is interesting is that, yes, Robinhood did cause commissions to become free. But actually, if you take a longer view of this, commissions have been in structural decline since the 80s, right? right. You should call your broker on the phone, and it would cost probably $60 to execute a trade, right? And so this is actually just because of technology. So whether or not Robinhood pushed it to free, it, these things were in a price war mm-hmm. state. The brokers have been competing away commissions for decades, and it was going to inevitably go to towards zero. Maybe not actually zero, but a dollar or $2 or whatever. These brokers have always been focused on reducing commissions as a form of marketing to get new accounts. And so this was going to happen anyway. So I would push back on the notion that we needed like payment of order flow to result in commission reduction. And actually, conversely, it may not be a good thing to get commissions that are free, right? The fact that there's no cost at all to trading, which leads to more trading, may lead to more value destruction. And so it actually could be a good thing. For all I know, there's going to be some study which says actually the optimal commission is $3 because that's the amount that gets people to actually think about what they're doing and maybe create some friction. So I, I don't know what the number is. Maybe it's an interesting study for someone in the Warren Finance Department, but I'm not, it's not clear to me that $0 commissions is actually a, a positive for society in aggregate. Yeah, Eric, that's a little contrarian to some things being touted. I like it. I can see the other side, you know, that maybe democratizing everything is not the best idea. And maybe that will rub some of our very idealistic listeners <laughs> the wrong way. I think a little friction, you know, at least compared to what Robinhood has, could be a good thing. I don't know if really that's in the form of another fee, but at least an educational component for your first set number of trades or having to always set you know, a basic exit price and exit plan or holding period could be very helpful. 
And I mean, that's just for equities. For options, I think it should be a whole other world. Robin has made it way too easy to trade options. Yeah, and there's, there's one other dynamic here, which is, I think, super, super important for people to understand with payment for order flow. So the most valuable order flow is options order flow. And the most valuable options order flow within that is on the most volatile and controversial stocks. So what does that basically mean? So it basically means that if you looked at payment for flow probably in, in January, my guess is GameStop options, weekly options, were probably the most valuable order flow from a monetization perspective. And so that's really bad. So basically what it means is that if people, like the best order flow to, to sell from the perspective of a broker trying to monetize this is to basically get people to trade short duration options in extremely volatile and controversial stocks. That's bottom line, like it's just fact. And so that is clearly not a good thing, right? If that's like ultimately what is being incentivized, that is strictly not positive. And that is, if you look at payment for overflow account dollar for Robinhood and you compare it to interactive brokers, there's a massive difference. And the reason it's so much higher Robinhood is because the amount of trading that occurs in options and especially these types of, you know, these controversial or very volatile stocks is, is much higher. And so that is the most valuable order flow. Yeah. And I mean, as you said, as companies start to rethink payment for order flow, they're going to have to think about new methods of monetization. Maybe one of the most popular ones that have come out is public.com announcing that they will be doing an optional tipping model on each trade, I think with a max of 5% of your total order. Do you have an opinion on if you think that this is a good business model at all? I'm pretty conflicted. I trust that team and a lot of the stuff that they've put together. And it's a step in the right direction. But optional tipping, I can't see many consumers buying into this. Yeah, I'm very skeptical. I mean, I think you might as well go back to just having commissions. I think it's just a way of saying that you don't have commissions, but you are encouraging people to give you commissions. <laughs> so I don't understand it. I, I think through that, we'll see if it works. I would be surprised if it does. I think ultimately, there's really two options. It's either you go back to having commissions and you do it in a way that is not maybe a flashy, maybe it scales with the trade size or number of shares, or you move to kind of a subscription model of having some premium features and access to certain things that you get with a subscription. And that's actually a higher quality and thicker revenue stream. So I think ultimately that's where a lot of folks may go. And there's a lot of reasons related to retention and other things that that's much higher quality revenue than volatile and uncertain commission revenue. So my guess is I think that's where folks may go over time. But yeah, I don't think a tipping model is is really going to be where the industry goes. I'm sure there's a study somewhere, and I know this has happened in other spaces, which says, oh, if you let people pay what they want, they actually end up paying more, right? I'm sure that's the thesis behind this. But I think ultimately then like just charge a cent a share or something. I know that's how how it used to be. I think that's highly transparent (laughs) and is very clear. So I don't know. I think it's a strange middle ground because I think folks are trying to toe the line of not saying that they charge commissions. Well, Eric, on that, you've entered the final round of the episode, which is the rapid fire round of questions. We have about eight questions for you or so. 10 second answer, Max. Are you ready? Shoot. All right. First one, your fintech hero. Max Lepton. Love it. How about investing hero? Charlie Munger. First post-COVID vacation, whole world's vaccinated. Where do you go and blow it out? Tokyo. Number one thing you look for in a vendor? Transparency. Biggest challenge faced in getting Adam Finance off the ground? Hiring. General investment advice to a mid-20s person with no debt and mild income? Pick five companies you love and think have great products and buy them. 
thoughts on cryptocurrency as an asset class? Don't understand it. All right. How about Adam Finance gets a $50 billion you know, exit slash IPO in a few years. What do you do afterward? Try to build a business to justify the valuation. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Probably go back to investing at some point. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Eric, it was great having you on the Wharton FinTech podcast today. I'm really excited to get this one out to our listeners. Definitely some very, very timely content here. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauck.